Welcome to Voices of Experience. Here's your host, Kate Delaney. November already? Hello, it's Kate Delaney with this edition of VOE. Are you on full crank mode to stack up more business for 2017? Perhaps clearing out what I call mind clutter to find time to create content that sets you apart? How do you differentiate yourself from the rest of the herd? How are you staying relevant? Are you a thought leader or do you just think you are? Those questions and more will be tackled this time around. Oops moments as well. Imagine hitting an audience member with a piece of your clothing. President-elect Brian Walter has some amazing end-of-the-year thoughts on business to share with all of us. And I'm not the president of anything, but as the chair of VOE, I am officially pardoning Mele Kalikimaka, that darn turkey that keeps hanging around the studio. Enjoy! All right, we're here with Mark Sanborn, who is a Hall of Fame speaker, CSP, and probably has a whole bunch of other letters next to his name that I'm just not aware of. <laughs> CSP, LMNOP, QRST. <laughs> Those are my, late, my latest designations. Very nice. So a lot of people who are not in the NSA certainly know you for, for, for some of the books that you've written. The Fred Factor always comes up. But that still has to feel really good to you to know that your book still resonates, right? Well, I never ever really expected that I would ever have a best-selling book. Of course, we all aspire to that and hope for it, but I'm kind of a pragmatist at heart. So when I wrote the book, I wanted it to do well, but when it became a bestseller and, and did as well as it did, I was very gratified. And really, in addition to the success that the book creates for you as a speaker and an author, it's fun over the years to run into people who say, I read your book and here's the difference it made. Uh, you know, when you can combine that making money with making meaning, you know, and uh, and making a living while you make a positive impact on others, that's really the best of both worlds. So you're a leadership expert, I'll call you, keynoter, motivational, sure, throw motivational in well, there, right? Motivational speaker, I believe, is the catchphrase we use for anyone that gets paid to speak, <laughs> whether it's about diversity or leadership or customer service or inspiration or growing avocados. Uh, if you get paid to speak, that's kind of the, the generic, that's the umbrella, which means that one of the challenges that a speaker has, the same as any business would have, is to find a way to differentiate yourself. Because if you're lumped in with thousands of motivational mm. speakers, uh, you're not going to be able to stand out and increase the likelihood of being chosen. So when I speak to speakers, we're having conversations like this, I always point out that it's one thing to understand how the marketplace thinks of you, but mm -hmm. it's another to help the marketplace know how to think about you. Excellent point. And, and in talking to leadership teams and talking to CEOs, C-suite, a lot of your sweet spot, I'll call it, you certainly have seen changes over the years. How do you stay relevant and continue to bounce the way you're bouncing and continue to, to bank the way you can bank when you have that expertise? Because you have to be rel relevant. Indeed. There are, there are a lot of ways to do that. So in the essence of time, here are what I think are the important ones. Number one is it helps to be a practitioner. The marketplace really uh, likes to have speakers that speak not about what they know only, but what they know and what they did. My friend Howard Putnam, who is a CEO of Southwest Airlines and Braniff and worked in the airline industry, in addition to being a, a, an amazingly powerful communicator, has his chops as a as a C-level executive. 
Um, certainly, uh, I came up through corporate America. I didn't have a distinguished career with Cisco or, or you know, any of the tech companies. But even when I was NSA president, I saw that as both an opportunity to serve and as a learning laboratory for what I could talk about. I speak to small organizations, large organizations, associations, nonprofits, government. And so I always say that truth is transferable. You know, the principles, the application may change, the context may change, but the principles don't. So A, it helps to be a practitioner. Uh, B, or, or secondly, I think you need to really be a student of the craft. I mean, I continue to read deeply, not just in leadership, because if you read only about your expertise, uh, you become a bit isolated. I, I want to have kind of a panoramic view of how leadership impacts different areas of culture and, 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 and society. So I think being a, a committed student, ongoing student is important. And then I think the final part of that is, is to realize that how you communicate your expertise is what uh, speaking is all about. You know, going back to when I was NSA president during the Jurassic period when dinosaurs roamed the earth, <laughs> my uh, theme, that's back when we had presidential themes, we don't anymore, was expertise to the power of eloquence, E to the power of E. So all of the experience and all of the knowledge in the world without the ability to communicate it eloquently or well or in an engaging, interesting manner will be of little value to you as a professional speaker. Mm. And and taking that and realizing that those are powerful words to apply to what you're doing, you see a sea of change that's happening in the world and with leadership and leadership teams and how and and really how they hire people to come in and help them. Sometimes doing what I call touchy-feely things that right. might be a little uncomfortable, but have worked in some sense for some corporations when it comes. To, to leaders, have you seen a little wave of change? I've seen a lot of change. Uh, interestingly enough, the biggest change I've seen in leadership was not among leaders, but among followers. Uh, I'm asked that question frequently, you know, what's the biggest change in leadership? Well, again, the principles by and large haven't changed, but the people who we lead really don't think of themselves as followers. They think of themselves as team members or as collaborators or as contributors. And words are powerful. If you treat someone like a follower, even though it isn't meant in a, a negative or derogatory manner, a follower is someone who watches and does what they see or what they're told. And in a complex business environment with technology and all the challenges we face, we certainly want people to understand the vision and where we're going as an organization, but you can't hope to ever be able to tell everyone what needs to be done. You want to develop people who have the ability to know what needs to be done. So when you call someone a follower, it creates this power down, subservient uh, relationship that frankly doesn't play well to today's employees, not just younger, but older employees as well. So I think when we change what we call the people we lead, it changes how we lead them. So I like to think about contributors and collaborators and team members. I also think that, uh, you know, there, there are speakers, I have friends that, you know, make the case that we've always had change and that change hasn't changed. Personally, I think that uh, we live in a world where change and challenge has accelerated and it's become more complex. Uh, 
you make a very pervasive case that uh, with all of the technology that has occurred in our lifetimes, that complexifies and accelerates the rate of change. So the ideas uh, around agility and being nimble and adaptable and resilient, uh, they've always been good ideas, but they've become more timely given the challenges we face. For anyone that's listening and they may say, well, you know, I don't speak about leadership. Uh, if you don't have a list of what you think are the two or three biggest changes in your topic or area of expertise, you're not thinking very deeply. Um, you're hired, as my friend, great friend Larry Wingett says, for your point of view. Even if people don't agree with you, they still expect you to have a point of view because a point of view gives them something to either argue against or agree with. And a lot of speakers, I think, believe that they're supposed to synthesize all of the thinking that's out there. And the reality is, is when they do that, they, they become less distinctive and they, and they become vanilla in their, in their point of view. So I always tell people, if you disagree with me, I'm not nearly uh, as offended as you might think, because to disagree, you had to think about what I said. And so I think to kind of circle back, it's important if, if whatever your expertise is to know what are the two or three biggest changes, your opinion. And if you can back that up with data, because most people don't do that hard work, you know, they say, well, I think. And, but if you can back that up with data and either secondary or, you know, proprietary research, then that's all the better. Thank you. That's terrific. The term thought leadership is used a lot, but is it abused? We caught up with CSP board member Neen James to dig deeper into thought leadership. Thought leadership, it's not just a cool buzzword. It's so much bigger than that. And I think we're heading into, in the upcoming years, a bigger sort of platform for it where more people are looking, mm -hmm. more meeting planners, sure. more conventions, uh, more corporations are looking for thought leadership principles, models, Absolutely. that kind of stuff, right? I think, though, the term, Kate, uh, thought leadership is overused. It's used and abused, and I think it's unfortunate. And so some people struggle, and I think it's one of those words that I wish I had a cooler replacement for it. When I was uh, privileged to serve as part of the convention that we had in D.C., one of the things I challenged the room to think about is be an ideal leader. Now, to me, thought leadership, someone who's a true thought leader, and I know lots of people put it on their business card, but that's not accurate. That's not really accurate. But I, what I believe is thought leaders are experts, a real subject matter expert who has the ability to change thinking, to change an industry, or maybe even change a life. And that's the difference. And so I think anyone can call themselves a thought leader However, I don't think that that's what we could be doing. I think what we need to do is earn our area of expertise. And so what I believe is you've got to have that unique perspective and not just be regurgitating. You want to be a thought leader, not a thought repeater. And unfortunately, in our industry, we see an enormous amount of that. And if you really want to make money in this business, you've got to identify what's your thought leadership. So how does somebody identify that, Neen? Your thought leadership is often something that you have more experience in than anybody else. And it's 
interesting because it's one of those things, it's often the lesson you've learned your whole life. And in my case, I'm still learning. And sometimes an easy way to identify it is there might be something in the world that drives you crazy. For example, I hate it when people don't pay attention. I think what's happened is we've made technology more important than people. People are paying so much more attention now to their smartphones than they are the beautiful person who's in front of them. And so my keynote is very much around giving techniques for how leaders can really profit by paying attention. Now, by the way, I didn't land on that when I first started speaking. Oh my gosh, I have talked about so many different things. And for the longest time, most people knew me in the area of productivity. And while I believe productivity is important, what I'm really passionate about is productivity was the conversation we used to have. Attention is the new currency. So in order for you to establish your thought leadership, you have got to be the world's expert in that area. The lesson you've been learning your whole life, the thing that drives you crazy, you've also got to know that topic so it almost comes out of you. And so I think you've got to be a walking role model of your thought leadership as well. And so I think it finds you, but you've got to invest time in discovering it. And when you talk about investing time, you also talk about building a model. Tell yes. Us about oh, I'm obsessed with models. My brain thinks in models. I love contextual models. So if you've ever sat with me at a bar at one of our events, or if I've ever had a piece of paper in front of you, I love understanding and helping people identify their thought leadership like you and I did, and then being able to create a contextual model for you. So let me explain to you what models are. Models really are just squares, circles, and triangles. That's it. And if you smush them together, put some arrows on there, make them look sexy, that's awesome. So I think models also have mojo. And to have mojo means that someone can look at your model and go, okay, I get that. And so when I create models for people and I do it for my clients, all of a sudden you take everything they've been thinking and you contextualize that in a model that they can roll through their organization. As experts who speak, we all need models. Models will commercialize your expertise. You will absolutely make more money because you will have a unique contextual model. And that's the piece. Because as speakers, many people, and I know we won't really talk about fee, but there's a certain fee structure where you might have some information and you share it and an audience likes you. You might elevate that a little bit more by maybe creating a book, but the people who are really making money in this business have unique contextual models. So everyone who's listening to this, I highly encourage you to create a contextual model for your intellectual property so that you can then show that to a client. You can put it in your proposals. You can show it in a slide deck. You can share it in your keynote. You can walk people if you're a trainer through the process. If you're a coach, you can use it in your coaching sessions. If you're a facilitator, it can set up the conversation. If you're an author, it becomes the context for your whole book. So I believe contextual models will absolutely change the business for people listening to this interview. Do you have a favorite, and this is a tough question, but do you have a favorite thought leader? Oh my gosh, I don't know that I could answer that. Let me tell you about someone who made a massive impact on me. When I first started speaking, actually I wasn't even a speaker, I was a corporate girl, and I walked into the National Speakers Association of Australia, Sydney chapter. A gentleman at the front of the room uh, was sharing all his intellectual property with the whole room. Now as a corporate girl, we protect our IP. We have lawyers in place to protect that, right? So I was like, what is he doing? These are his competitors, what is wrong with him? But I was so fascinated by his delivery, his expertise, his elegance on stage. So I walked up to him afterwards and I said, I want to be a speaker. I want to do, and I know many of you listening, 
you often get that same request. Um, and I decided he was going to be my mentor. It took me six months to convince him he was going to be my mentor. Uh, he became my mentor. He later became my business partner and someone I love and admire so deeply and a gentleman by the name of Matt Church. And Matt Church is the founder of Thought Leaders Global, of which I'm a partner. Wow. So after that six-month period when you finally went from meeting him, telling him uh, what you wanted to do, and then getting in and having him become your business partner was just an amazing... Oh, honey, that was not six months. It took me six months to convince him to mentor me. <laughs> oh, no, no, don't be mistaken by my comment. I was a pain to him. And I said to him, you're going to be my mentor. He's like, no. No, I'm not. I was like, no, wait, I am Neen James. Like, you want to mentor me? He was like, no, I really don't. And so for the longest time, he didn't want to mentor me. Let's be very clear. He wanted nothing to do with that. God bless him, though, because I put a contract in front of him. I literally made him sign a document. I said, this is my responsibilities as a mentee, and these are your responsibilities as my mentor. And by the way, I would pick him up from the airport. I would sell books for him at the back of the room. I would work in his office. I would buy a plane ticket to have time with him in the air. I was very committed to the mentoring process. I think lots of people say they want to be mentored, but they don't want to do the work. So as a mentee, the responsibility is on you. So he is, to this day, someone who still impacts me, and um, and I admire him, the quality of the work that he produces, the articles, the books he writes. He's a true thought leader in the area of thought leadership. Neen, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you. We're here with Tim Durkin, CSP. Very proud to be a CSP, as so many people are. It's really cool to see the the, desig the people that get the designation and they walk around at all of our influences with their medals. And we honor them for that, for the work that they've put in. But a lot of people are um, sometimes shy away because they don't understand the requirements. They're, they probably meet the requirements and don't realize that. And there's other people who are striving to get that designation, but still are kind of fuzzy about what it is that it takes. So it's perfect to have our pal Tim here to give us the skinny on how do we become CSP. Peace. Hi, Tim. Well, hi, Kate, and thanks for having me. I'm pleased to say that this is the year I serve as chairman of the CSP committee of, at NASA. And our goal, if you um, want to have it in one word or one sentence, is that we are going to try to make as many people as possible who deserve being earning the CSP designation the CSP designation. In other words, there's no magic about 10% of the group of NSA members being CSPs. We want as many people who qualify to earn it. If that's 30%, that would be great. The big point that we want to make with certified speaking professionals is we want any meeting planner anywhere to know that they can hire somebody with a CSP designation and know they are getting truly a certified professional speaker. So let's talk about some of the requirements. The requirements as far as years, what, what, how is that? Well, what, the way that you can qualify or earn your CSP is that you go back 10 years. And currently this year, that would mean you would go back to 2007. And you must, in the t from 2007 to this date, have spoken at least 250 times. And during those 10 years, at least during five of those years, you have to be able to prove that you earned at least $50,000 per year in five of those 10 years. 
How do you measure the 50,000, Tim? Well, that's really been one of the biggest changes we've made for applying for the CSP. The, it used to be that only the fee earned on site it would counted towards that, but there's a number of different ways that you can earn that 50,000. The first way, of course, is through the fee, but the second way that you can earn that is that you can earn it on same-day back-of-room sales or product sales because there are a number of people who've earned their CSP in recent years who were not allowed because they had full-time jobs with companies to accept fees but could accept back-of-room sales and a number of people have done that and then the third way which I just kind of uh, intimated was the CSP designation can actually be earned by full-time employees and what how that works is that there are some uh, or there are many people who apply that have a full-time job and speaking or training is part of that job. You can qualify for the CSP if you can figure out and verify by your employer that w there's a certain percentage of your work that you spend speaking and training. For example, uh, it could be two days out of the week you're a trainer. Well, that would be 40% of that week's income or 40% of your income. So all you would do is take your annual income and take 40% of that and you can apply that to the $50,000 per year requirement. Um, that has opened the door for a lot of CSPs. Again, we're trying to allow as many people as possible to earn the designation. Okay, so how is the video evaluated? The video was added three years ago so that we could get an understanding of, you know, there's the four E's and there's, there's the E about eloquence. How are your platform skills? In the past, in, the in our history, we have had people that earned the CSP designation by virtue of the number of speeches that they gave and the earnings that they had. However, their platform skills weren't up to par. When people such as meeting planners and speakers bureaus were looking at hiring these people, uh, they took the, for granted that if they earned the CSP that they would be great on the stage and, and in some cases that wasn't true. So they added the requirement for eloquence and said, we want to see now 45 minutes uncut version of you on video speaking or training or facilitating. And we're going to ask four people that are currently CSPs to evaluate that. You get to pick, the applicant gets to pick two of those evaluators, and NSA will pick two others of those evaluators. Those four people will score you in six areas, and you have to have a minimum score of 28 out of 36 possible in order to pass that hurdle. What we found is that we are getting a much higher level of platform skilled certified speaking professionals. Thus, the designation is really starting to stand for very high quality professional speakers who know how to do the job they were hired to do. Is it a straight speech or can it can it count if you were doing facilitating or doing some other it, form? It absolutely can. Uh, there, there's facilitators are making it, trainers are making it, uh, some people in the entertaining speaking are making it, and a lot of keynotes are making it. And that's a nice wide array of people that are eligible, and that's one of the changes that we've made to the CSP designation over the years. It's not just keynoters. I know you're very, very proud of what's happened with the CSP and how that's really grown and now the requirements. How about 
your CSP. Do you remember when you got yours? Oh, I did. I, this is one of the things you never forget. I remember that I got it at the uh, the great convention that we had, NSA Rocks, New York City, the Marriott Marquis, 2008. Uh, it's Eric, it was Eric Chester's. Uh, he did a great job. It was Mark LeBlanc's uh, year. It was uh, it was an excellent year, and we, yeah, I have the uh, the picture and the medal in in my office, right over my desk. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Time for the monthly oops moment when speakers reveal well when things didn't go quite as planned. Oops. Hi, this is Jared Bro, CSP, and my biggest oops moment was the day that in the middle of my presentation, I got a bout of kidney stones, and the kidneys just hurting like crazy. <laughs> I'm deciding I got to finish for the client, <laughs> and left from there and went straight to the hospital. So this is Amy Castro, CSP, and my oops moment, uh, I'm, I'm, I hate to admit it, but I've got two things going against me. Number one, I'm short. And number two, I'm cheap. So as a really short person, all of five, two and three quarter inches tall, everything I buy has to be hemmed. But if I can avoid paying to do that, I will do that. So back in the probably late 80s when people were wearing shoulder pads, I know the ladies listening will remember that, my jacket sleeves were too long and I thought, well, what the heck's wrong with just sticking a few extra shoulder pads up underneath your jacket so that the sleeves rise up. And if you need to practice and demonstrate on yourself, you will see that that actually works. All fine and good. I'm at my first keynote that I've ever done in my life and I'm rocking it, I'm rolling it, my, my arms are flying left and right and I go to gesture with a particularly strong hand gesture and a shoulder pad came flying out of my sleeve like a flying saucer and hit somebody right in the face. Dan Griffin oops moment. So I was doing a presentation on men and women with one of my female colleagues and we had decided we were going to mess with the audience. So we were having an argument off stage with our mics on. And part of the idea was to hear them, have them hear us having this argument. Well, unbeknownst to us, not only did they kind of get jarred, a man ran out of the room and came in and confronted us in front of, while the speakers were on with the rest of the audience and kind of through us because we're like no no this is part of the part of the stick so you know when you try to do something a little sneaky you never know how it's going to go i'm alex ramsey and my biggest oops moment or one of my biggest oops moments because there have been many was in front of an audience all of a sudden, as I was making some powerful, incredible, wonderful point with all eyes on me, my front tooth went flying across the room. And um, they didn't see it. But I had a huge hole in the front of my mouth, and I managed somehow to dance my way over to the vicinity of where the tooth that had almost pelted a trajectory of people was, was, and I did find it, and I picked it up and turned around and put it back in my mouth. It's Jill's Juicy Bites, the place to get communication strategies to grow your business. Here's Jill Schiffelbein. I'm sitting here with Jill Schiffelbein, and uh, my pal, 
has really taught us some brilliant things on Jill's Juicy Bites. So we thought it'd be fun to do kind of an interview style segment where we talk about what are the basics you need because the word technology to some people is frightening. Even people who are smart sometimes get overwhelmed by technology because they try to use too much and it's not effective and they give up. They give up and it's uh, and it's brutal. So what do we do and how do we leverage that through with the media and figure this whole thing out? You know, I think, Kate, a lot of people, especially in the speaker world, when they think of technology, one of the first things they think of is social media. And when it comes to social media, it's really interesting because you'll hear opinions all over the board. So let me just put this out there straight. Let me own my expertise. I do not consider myself a social media expert. I consider myself someone who uses social media strategically well to communicate and reach my audience. The back end stuff of it, that is not me. But here, in using communication through technology, what's important to know, I think as speakers, is what tools, at least from a social media perspective, do you really need to have to, quite frankly, not embarrass yourself? Yeah, and so what are the, what are one of the, give us the tools, just give them to us. You know, here's the deal, if you have listened to this show, you've known, um, and if you haven't listened to the segment on SEO, make sure you go listen to that, because that will make this information make so much more sense to you. Social media, the big heavy hitters, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, those are the initial big three, but now uh, Instagram, depending on your audience, is up there, and now there's Snapchat and Pinterest and all this stuff. Here's the deal, if you're gonna do it, be consistent and know where your audience is. Number one, it matters what your audience is using, and number two, it matters that you do it consistently. One of the things that I always say to my audiences, and it's not my quote, I wish I could own these words, but it's one cannot not communicate. So what you say and what you do not say or what you do and what you do not do communicate. So if you have a Facebook page for your business and you haven't posted anything for 30 days, that communicates a message that you are not current, that you are not relevant, that you are not timely and up to date with that social media channel. So it's actually hurting you more than helping to have that presence. Same with Twitter, same with every other social media. If you're not doing it at least on a monthly basis, and I mean, that's the bare bones minimum, cringe-worthy, not doing it, then ignore it. Get that channel out of the way and focus on the ones that you are using. Because here's the deal. When people search for you, if they are searching for your name, if you've had a business for a while, that website, your own website, will probably come up in the first page, hopefully in the top three. But especially if you're just starting out, or let's be honest, if you really haven't optimized your website well, if you haven't used technology well, people will type in your name and you know what's gonna come up first? Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you have that presence, because those sites have more social clout than you do when it comes to people finding you in search. So in my opinion, if you are a speaker and you do not have a solid LinkedIn page, that is the biggest uh, mistake that you could be making. And that was a euphemism right there because I can't probably say what I wanna say. Get that in order because you are most likely being searched and they're pulling up a LinkedIn profile that hasn't been updated, that isn't relevant, that doesn't have your keywords, that doesn't even identify you as a speaker. So if you don't even have that in order, that is the first and foremost because people are looking 
for you on LinkedIn if they hear your name from someone and just Google your name, unless you've gotten it so that your website is number one or two up there, LinkedIn is likely going to be there. Then same with Facebook and Twitter. All right, yeah, and it's interesting, too, you say that about LinkedIn because uh, even though I have the broadcasting road, I'll give myself as the example and speaking, everybody looks at me through LinkedIn first. That's where they go. They want to find out more. They want to know your background. There's no question, Jill. You're absolutely 100% right. On LinkedIn itself, what do you think is critical to have on LinkedIn? Critical on LinkedIn, and again, there are some LinkedIn experts out there that know this better than me. Go talk to them, but here's your bare bones you know, communication through technology here. In your name, don't just put comma, owner, and whatever your business name is. Put what you do. If you're a keynote speaker, if you're a dynamic trainer, me, I'm a dynamic communicator, right? I own my brand, you do that. Put that stuff in the title because that gives you a lot of SEO clout there. In your description, don't put your bio. Put results that you've actually gotten for clients. Put problems that you help solve give examples. On LinkedIn, you're able to post a video if you're a speaker and your speaker reel isn't up there, or if you maybe have a YouTube video that you love or you're proud of and you'd rather have that up there instead because maybe you do way more than speaking in your business and maybe you're known for training consulting first like I am. You know, you pick what video you want up there, but get it up there. And of course, you need to link your websites and your relevant channels. But again, just because you can link to other social media channels doesn't mean you should. And if you're one of those who doesn't post with frequency, and consistency, then that communicates to your audience and you don't want to have that be the first impression you make. Yeah, what do you think besides uh, LinkedIn to you, what would be number two? It really depends on your audience and where your audience is at. But I know most people at this point in time have Facebook, right? And then there's this, you know, this battle in your mind. Do I have a personal page? Do I have a public page? Do I have a business page? And what you do that, depending on your branding, marketing strategy, and your audience, that advice is going to vary. But here's the deal. Even if you have a private page and you don't have a business Facebook page, now this is a really important hint for everyone. Let's say you don't want to deal with a business page, you just have a personal page. But of course, you have your privacy settings. What I suggest you do is that you keep your privacy setting for friends only, family, however you have it set. But every once in a while, maybe every couple of weeks, you make a post that's more public on your own personal Facebook page and you can change the privacy settings for that one post and that's when you're sharing a blog that you've written, an article you've contributed to, something where you're post uh, quoted, a picture you have on stage, something that you're okay being made public because if it's an article, it already is. You put that on your own Facebook page, set that one post to public so then at least when people search your name and Facebook takes over the world and comes up in one of those top three spaces, you're at least going to have something on your page that reflects who you are as a professional. Yeah. So LinkedIn, Facebook, one more, Instagram? You know, Instagram or Twitter, Instagram is blowing up literally. And, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts personally. And uh, Scott Stratton, who spoke at Influence 2016, said this, and I just wanted to stand up and cheer. It's that it annoys the crap out of me when you see someone that you follow in multiple channels post the exact same. They post it on Instagram, and then boom, it's on Facebook, and boom, it's on Twitter. No, these channels are different for different reasons. And some people, uh, social media experts included, would argue against what I just said, and I'm cool with that. But here's the deal. When it comes to the buzzword of authenticity, uh, 
you want to be unique in each spot, but here's the deal, these channels were created for different reasons. LinkedIn was created for a professional audience. Facebook was created to build a social network. Twitter was created to disseminate short bits of information at the same time. Now, with the advancements of technology, they're all getting a little more homogenous, but the original principles behind these uh, different platforms still exist. And people, when they're looking at you at Twitter, they wanna get bite-sized chunks right away. So in your 140 characters, even if you're linking, some of those characters need to add value. And that's not gonna happen if you just link to a Facebook post that's 500 words long, or a LinkedIn Pulse article that's 700 words long. They're not going to get your value. So you need to be communicating in all of those different ways, but make your communication match the platform. Perfect. That's it for Jill's Juicy Bites. Thanks, Kate. Let's check in with the National Speakers Association President, John Molidor, for our monthly conversation. John, one of the things that you talked about was how we need to elevate the profession and that the NSA could be in danger, if we don't do that, of being obsolete. Now, some people listening to that would not like hearing that. Why will the NSA become obsolete if we don't do something to elevate the profession? I think the biggest threat that's out there is that knowledge is now accessible by everybody. So it used to be, I mean, you could take any area uh, take even real estate. Nobody kind of knew all the stuff that went on. Now you can go and Google the information or look at uh, buying a car. It's like everybody told you this in the negotiation. Now you can find out the actual price. You can find out incentives. So it's all there and it's all available. So if we are to advance as a profession, we need to get a lot better at building our knowledge base, our content. So it's original, it's fact-checked, and then if we don't, I think other people are going to start to put us out of business because they will take the time to find the best information and then sell it, market it, put it out there. And we'll be in trouble, I think, as a profession. So as a speaker, how do you get ahead of the, the curve? How do we do that? How do we dig up that knowledge and be that much bigger, badder than anyone else out there with a computer and access to the Internet? I think what we have to do is drop down below the normal level of just doing a simple Google search. I mean, you got to go to the sites. You got to find who are the researchers. I mean, you can go to uh, scholars.google. Uh, you could go to Eric. There's all kinds of databases out there that you can find the research, and then you search by your topic. What about calling the researcher? I know a lot of researchers have no problem with people reaching out to them to interview them. You know, we tell speakers that all the time, don't we? That we, why don't you, why don't you be a little more journalistic or inquisitive and and contact people? Absolutely. Just, just pick up the phone, email them. Typically on any research paper, they give you the email. You just send them an email, read your article. We'd love to talk with you a little more in depth. How do I figure out where we go for the next step? When we look at competition, and, and we, it's just the wild, wild west, we know that, but is there any particular reason why you think that, that we're in danger if we could lose members, we could lose maybe the great standing NSA has if it, if it were to, to get watered down, if we were to become more watered down? Who do you think is the biggest threat out there? Any one you know, organization, can you think of an acronym or no, it's just, it's just there's so much access, that's the main thing. I think there's so much access, but I always worry that if Hollywood decided to get in the education business, they would probably put universities out of business. 
because basically they know all the visual stuff, they know all the techniques to convey information that they did put together with content, that would be, that'd be scary to me. So really what we're talking about too is content is king. We're all content merchants, right? Even if you're more about the sizzle, even if you're about a, a diver, if you, if you deep, if you do a deep dive, you obviously care about content. But there are a lot of speakers who are fabulous, who are entertaining, who are funny. But even in those areas, they have to have really good content, right? Absolutely. And you're seeing more and more of the people that have sort of that entertainment piece to it that can connect with their audiences. We're starting to see them put in the content that then goes with their entertainment. That has huge impact because people want both because we've been so inundated with people that are phenomenal entertainers. Unfortunately, I think education gets sort of hit in that it's sort of seen as kind of dull and you just have to learn it and it's mechanical. But I think if you marry the two, you can get incredible impact. Do you think there's a big market for education speakers? I know personally I've coached, I've, I've had a couple of um, professors that I know that are brilliant, but they're not as comfortable speaking. So they've asked me, and I'm sure other other folks in this organization, to, to help them get a little bit better, more comfortable in front of a group. Absolutely. And so when we look at the four E's, we've often said that if you have expertise and no eloquence, you're probably a professor. And so if you could build the eloquence side, you become a lot more effective because they're teaching and interacting with the generation that they want it, they want it now, and if they don't get it from their professors, they just have to do a search of all the different lectures that are out there to learn the material. Even our medical schools are now starting to look at how do we put all these lectures together, find the best lecturer in anatomy, and then put it online and let the students learn from that. So. Every medical school is duplicating. Are speakers duplicating? Are there ways for us to learn from other professions so that we can advance our own profession? But again, driving home the point that we started talking about, the key thing is don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves and do a little research and don't take whatever's said as pure fact. I think you have to check it, double check it. So I'll often do searches to talk about contraindications or what are the speaking myths that are out there? Because a lot of people now are writing about it. So we see it in a lot of different areas. And so I would just keep digging deeper and deeper. Great. Thanks, John. You're welcome. Thanks, Kate. We're happy to catch up with Tracy Brown, who's a diversity expert. She did a TED Talk called What is Mine to Do? Tracy, thanks for stopping by and explain the phrase, what is mine to do? Well, it's a phrase I've used for years, but in 2015 it became really um, kind of like a signature phrase because people were asking me what could they do to contribute to the end of race-based hatred and violence. And uh, the more I talked to people, the more it became, well, everybody can do something. You don't have to be an activist. You don't have to go to jail. You don't have to be a politician. Every one of us has something to do. And I found myself asking the question to people, well, what's yours to do? And having them say, well, what's mine to do is to really seek out people around me who I've ignored or to introduce myself to people who are different from me and ask them about their experience. What is mine to do is to pray about um, 
communication and love and compassion. Or what is mine to do is to research and learn more about people who are different from me. So this question, what is mine to do, opened up the door to a lot of action as well as increased awareness related to creating a world where there's more respect. Do you think because we live in what I call the 140 character world where we're all distracted, it's all about, oh, I got to tweet this out. I can't tell you how many people when I've been to New York crash into other people because they have their head down looking mm-hmm. at their at their phones. So we're losing connectedness. Is It's also about connectedness, right? Connecting? I think so. I think we are so caught up in our own individual world, and you're right sound bites, really quick messages, emails, text messages, Twitter. It's like I'm forgetting that there's a person, right, in there. And so this what is mine to do question reminds us that I can actually take action. The world is not happening all around me. I create the world that I want to be in. How do people become more conscious about that and actually implement that? Good question. Um, We've got a very active group of people on Facebook who are reminding each other every day to ask the question, what is mine to do? And with clients, I find that it's the one-on-one interaction. And isn't that what we do in this business, whether we're on the keynote platform or whether we're consultants or coaches or trainers, we get to remind people and we give them things to remind themselves. So a lot of the takeaways in the work that I do with people is to give them a structure or to give them questions or to get them to sign up for my email list, not so I can advertise to them, but so that I can remind them through a quick email or a quick video to ask that question and then to do something, because I'm really big about that. The question is really great, but you've got to take some action. So how gratifying has this been for you? I can imagine you've touched people and they've gotten back to you about it. Is there an aha, the most gratifying thing that I've had happen? So I've talked about this with people not only in race-based ending race-based hatred and violence, but the example that immediately came to mind was related to that. And there was a woman who had specifically asked me if she should go to an event uh, over a holiday weekend with her family because the event was at a country club. And she felt by going to the country club that really didn't have many people of color, if any, except working as staff, cleaning or serving. And she didn't want to go because she felt that would be um, bringing her into like alignment with that. And I, I had said to her, no, go because you get to be an example of something different. You can have conversations, you can model authentic relationships with all people, regardless of their socioeconomic um, background. So she got back to me and said, yeah, what was mine to do was to go to be there as a white woman of privilege, with wealth, and demonstrate for my nieces and nephews who are teenagers that everyone is a person and I value them no matter what their role. And so stories like that come to me all the time. I can't make it up. 
every person gets to decide who do they touch? Who can they build communication and relationship with? How can they touch the world? How important is this for, for especially given the distractions we just talked about, for future generations? What happens to the people behind, the millennials and even younger, if they don't ask the question, what is mine to do? So we always know that the future is out of our control, but what we model and what we demonstrate and our behavior is what people copy. It's not our words. And so by modeling that we can build relationships, it's exactly what we do as speakers, right? No matter what our topic is, we're trying to create a better world, or we're trying to help our audience members improve their lives in some way. And so it becomes the repetition of the message, but encouraging people to go into action and not only have awareness about it. And I think that's what helps us build the bridge into the next generation and the generations beyond. Tracy Brown, it's been a lot of fun having a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for stopping by. You're welcome. My pleasure. Time for another one-minute power thought on writing and creativity with Dave Lieber. Dave, this time, what are we talking about? Being a journalist. Yeah, being a journalist, which you and I both are. And I've been one for all 40 years now and also a CSP speaker. So I have a foot in both camps. And one of the things I want to urge all my speaker, coach, trainer, uh, writer friends is to be a journalist. Uh, just because you're not working for a media outlet doesn't mean you can't act like me. You can call people up on the phone and interview them. You can send them emails with questions. Um, you can go places you're not supposed to go. And by doing that, you expose yourself to things that really make your business stronger. So you have to force yourself to go out and ask a bunch of questions to people and be respectful of them, and they will answer your questions. It's amazing that people want to talk to you. They want to tell you about their expertise. You just got to be there to ask them. All right, we'll be back again. Thanks, Dave, with another one-minute power thought on writing and creativity next month. Thanks. Time to take it out of the park on Voices of Experience. Fun to catch up with Shauna Suko and uh, talk a little bit about something that is very important to all of us because we're in this this fun life that we've chosen to yes enjoy and give back and all those great things and oh maybe the applause but to make money <laughs> right right let's be honest you want to make a living at this you can't this. do that unless you get booked right that's right how many people want to juggle 50 side jobs it's not fun i don't want to clean dishes you know no. for a living i don't no. want to do that i'd rather be speaking yeah, I did that once at Ohio University. That I did that enough. once, too. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> no. And so for 20 years, you you had to book speakers. You did the yes. meeting planner thing. Yes. And what did you see as some of the biggest mistakes that were made? Well, I'm still seeing them today. Um, I'm still chairing an association of 3,000 meeting planners for about another year. And so I'm still approached all the time to speak at our conference. And so it's really interesting to see kind of both sides sides of it and how things are shifting. And one of the things is speakers today are still cold calling, S calling up planners and saying, do you ever use speakers who? Oh my gosh, you, you can't, first of all, 96% of buyers everywhere don't pick up the phone anymore. We just don't, our, our culture's changed. 
And uh, so you leave a voicemail that says, hi, do you ever use speakers that skydive, you know, into mustard? Uh, no, I really don't, but thanks for the voice. You know, so you can't do that. You have to know that they book speakers like you by doing your research first. And so one of the things I recommend is we all know speakers who are similar to us or in that same kind of vein. Figure out, Google them, figure out where they've been speaking and then start to build a relationship. Hey, I see that you booked Brad to speak. I am a similar field, but here's my take on things. Would I be a good fit? And then it's an intelligence call, not a cold call. That's, ah. one, that's one tip. That's one way to do it. What's another way to do it? Another way to do it is the buddy system. So if you know Brad speaks to you know, similar audiences to you, why not approach Brad and say, hey Brad, I'm happy to refer you to my audiences and my meeting planners, and if you will do the same. And uh, I've done this myself. I've seen it work beautifully. I've heard others that, that do this um, with speakers that they trust. And you send an email to the planner afterward and, and, and copy the other person and say, hey, planner, I wanted you to meet Brad. Brad, uh, I really enjoyed speaking at your conference. I know you're not going to hire me two years in a row. Brad's a great follow-up, adjunct, whatever, to what I talk about. And have an agreement with Brad because referrals get you in the door with planners more so than, than cold calling ever will. Yeah, why is there not enough referrals? I mean, we can all go yeah. see each other speak. That's, I think so, right. right? And we see each other speak at Influence or Winter Conference, and we, you know, we, we know what our peers are capable of. We can watch their videos and see if there's somebody that we feel comfortable recommending. So those are some great tips. There are some great things that people can do to elevate, hopefully, their bookings. What are some definite do-not-dos, I mean, that, that you see also that trip up speakers? And all kinds of speakers, yeah. by the way, not just Everybody. Like beginner speakers. Yeah, speakers at high levels, intermediate, uh, the cold calls, and then the email blasts about, like, Book, why do I keep picking on Brad? I don't even, you know, I don't have anybody in mind if your name is Brad, but, you know, Brad Jones, international great speaker who skydives into mustard. And then it goes on to this pitch rather than talking to the planner like, like he or she is a human being and saying, hey, I see that you have this conference whose audience is this. Um, I'm Brad. I skydive into mustard. I, it sounds crazy. I, you know, I know you're busy. Um, here's three things or three programs that I do, you know, quick three bullets, signed Brad. And treat them like the busy people that they are, treat them with respect by acknowledging that they're busy, and be brief and be human and have a subject line that's not, hey, it's all about Brad. It's, I like subject lines uh, with questions in them or vague subject lines because they know they, that they get opened. So can we talk is one of my favorite ones. Really? Oh, yeah. Can we talk? Yeah. Now that I'm not a meeting planner anymore, for the past six years, I've been a sales trainer from the buyer perspective. And that's one of the things that I teach is, you know, don't be so salesy anymore. Nobody likes that. As, you know, buyers everywhere. You don't like it. I don't like it. And meeting planners don't like it. So you have to approach them differently and intrigue them. Don't bowl them over with some sales pitchy, you know, subject line or sales pitchy email. Right. So be... I hate the word authentic. Authentic, it's so but, it's, but it's accurate. Be you, just be you, right? Be authentic, be you, be different. Um, share with us very quickly, very briefly, to the point, how you're different, but also share with us that you've done a little bit of research. 
What about something clever? I mean, if you come up with a clever idea, sending someone something, or is that, oh, uh, that's too, that's too kissy? Everybody loves to get stuff in the mail. I mean, we love to get stuff in the mail. And for me, you know, the hokier, the better. <laughs> Everybody, you know, so why not? Why not? Sure, it's gonna I hurt. heard somebody got a great gig by sending a bottle of barbecue sauce um, to a producer. They found out he was from Texas. He now lives in LA and they sent a bottle of barbecue sauce with a note and they got booked. Wow. It's, it's, it's brilliant. You know, they it did their is. research and they found out, okay, he's a human being. He's not just Mr. Producer Man. So we keep coming back to the thing, same thing. You need to do research. Absolutely, that's the key. It has to be an intelligence call, an intelligence email, intelligence, intelligence, you know, do your research or you're going to be ignored, you're going to be deleted. Yep. Thank you very much. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Here's Kate Delaney with If You Want to Get Heard. Here we are at the end of this month's Voices of Experience, and boy, certainly we listen to lots of ways to get heard. How many times did the word research come up in the interviews? If you work on digging deep into a topic or an interest, and you put a new twist into the mix, could you call yourself an innovator? Just brainstorming out loud. One of my favorite words, by the way, is innovation. But just like CSP Neen James said that thought leadership can be overused and misunderstood, Hall of Fame speaker and CSP Steve Shapiro stopped by with some thoughts on innovation, how it's used, and what it means to him. In a nutshell, to me, innovation is about being relevant. So it's not, because we, we sometimes get so caught up in, okay, I got to come up with something new or cool or different. It's a new product or it's a new way to deliver something. But that, to me, is not what innovation is about. It's about being relevant in the mind of the market. And we as speakers need to make sure that we're innovating so that we're staying up with the times and meeting the needs of changing demographics, changing technology, and all these other things. So to me, that's really the key is how do we serve a purpose? How do we stay relevant in the minds of our buyers? So how do you do that? Part of it is to recognize that expertise is the enemy of innovation. So if we are experts, and it's one of the challenges I think we face in NSA is we come to NSA meetings, we hang out with NSA people, our masterminds are NSA people, and because of that, we tend to somewhat be insular. We tend to focus inward in terms of what we think people want. In order to really stay relevant, we need to tap externally. We need to understand what it is that's happening in the market. So instead of spending time with speakers all the time, what we need to do is start spending time with people who are from completely different areas. So I've, for example, I'm fascinated with what Google and Cisco and other technology companies are doing to shape the way people communicate and collaborate. That to me becomes fascinating. I'm interested to understand how people learn, so like neuroscience and, and how the brain is wired. And I'm really interested to understand what my clients, their expectations are. So if we spend all of our time with bureaus and speakers and meeting planners, we've really just dealt with a, a very, very small slice of the world. And do you think if people reached out to other communities and do more of what you're saying, that they would be more sellable? I think so. I mean, I've done some what I would think of as being innovative concepts that uh, I did not get from other speakers because there's no one else out doing them. I created them myself. They're my own design. Uh, and what I did was I looked at what I think the problem is in the market rather than saying, what can I replicate that someone else is doing? What is a need that's not being met in the market that I can create that will then hopefully create uh, value for buyers, which in turn will make me more valuable and help me stand out. 
Speaking of setting yourself apart, President-elect Brian Walter joins us finally. Oops, should have worn a watch. Sorry, Connie Podesta. My timing is off. Talk to you next month. Okay. Happy Thanksgiving. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.